Well, good morning. Once again, everyone, welcome to North Park. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at North Park. It's my privilege to be here this morning to, to preach, to proclaim God's word as we begin a new series. We are beginning a new series this morning in the Gospel of Luke, and this is kind of our Advent series. It is our Advent series, but technically Advent begins next week. So it's like our Christmas series. So anyways, but anyways, we're beginning this new series where we'll look at the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke and how Luke tells the story of the birth of both Jesus, but also Jesus' forerunner, which is John the Baptist. And we've titled this series, Till He Appears, which if you are someone who is well-versed in Christmas carols, you may notice that this is a line that comes from the Christmas song. Does anyone know? I'm going to shut it out. Oh, holy night. Come on, guys. Where's the participation here? Oh, holy night. Okay. The whole line is actually this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. And I noticed this morning as I first read that to the congregation that when I read that line every time, I just hear Celine Dion in my mind (laughs) singing that song. I love that version. But I also love that line. In fact, I love so many lines from the different Christmas carols that we sing because I feel like many of our beloved Christmas carols get right about Christmas what we and what our world so often misses about what Christmas is really about. And that is that Christmas is not a time to just throw up lights and pretend that everything is okay, which is often what I feel like we do. We go into Christmas and we think that we're supposed to be in a good mood, we're supposed to be joyful, even though we don't actually feel that. In reality, though, Christmas is about us saying that despite all the darkness, there is light that has come, that God has finally delivered on his promises. It is about us celebrating and remembering that God has broken into history and is overturning the ways of our world. It is about God's great reversal that we have so desperately longed for. And that's what that line in O Holy Night is getting at. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul finally Finally, we actually see how much God thinks we are worth because Christ has come. That's what that line is getting at, but that's what Luke is also getting at in the first two chapters of his gospel. And that's why we have titled this series, Till He Appears. Because what do we want to be looking at in the next number of weeks? And what I hope to show you today is that the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ is the beginning of God's great salvation in which all the longings of our world, the longings of us all for a different world, for a different life, for a great reversal where everything is put right, where we no longer have to pray the prayers that Wesley just prayed, longing for God to do something about the chaos, but the pain in our world. God has begun to make those things right. Christmas is actually celebrating that that is true, that finally God's promises are being fulfilled. And that's what I want to look at this morning, then, as we look at the birth of John the Baptist. And so if you are someone who is looking for God to act, who is longing for the world to be different, who is longing for your life to be different, for God to give you what it seems like he has promised, that's what this series is actually for, is to say, God is faithful. He will do it. 
He will be faithful to what he's promised to do. So let me pray first, then we can dive into the text. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we can know he has come. Christ has come, and he will come again. I pray right now, Lord, that you would speak. In your mercy and your grace, may your Holy Spirit be active, Lord, to draw our hearts to know you, to look to Jesus Christ. I pray that as we look at the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, Lord, that you would actually use this story to help point our hearts toward you, to know what you have done. I want to pray especially, Lord, for those right now who feel hopeless, who feel like there are things in their lives that you could never reverse, that maybe they don't say that out loud, but if they are honest, that is actually how they feel deep down. Lord, would you please assure them today that there is nothing too dark, there is no problem that is unfixable by you. May they know that because of your grace, because of your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we begin here, please look with me again at verses five through seven. Okay, it says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Okay, so these are pretty fascinating verses that Luke begins his gospel with. Now, of course, technically... This is not the beginning of the gospel, okay? Because there's verses one through four that come before verse five. But I still want to call verse five the real beginning of the gospel of Luke. And I'm going to do that for two different reasons. The first is because if you look at those first four verses, you will see pretty quickly that they are a prologue, okay? That really what's going on here is Luke is writing this quick note to the original reader, which is this guy named Theophilus, telling Theophilus what he is seeking to do with his gospel, He's basically saying, listen, I've researched all these things, and so I'm writing an orderly account so that you may have certainty about what Christ has accomplished, all right? That's essentially what he does in the first four verses, and then he really launches into what that is in verse five. So that's the first reason. But the second reason is because when you compare verses one through four with verse five, their styles, specifically their Greek styles, are very different, Okay, Luke 1, 1 through 4, is actually one long sentence that displays the best, most polished, and most cultivated Greek that we have in all of the Bible. And it is in a style of writing that's very different from the rest of the Bible, including the Old Testament translation, which is called the Septuagint, and the rest of the New Testament. These first four verses are very different than the rest of it. It has numerous words that you don't find anywhere else, and it feels a lot more like the introduction to like a great work of Greek philosophy. It just has this very different feel when you compare this Greek to any other place in the Bible. But that all changes as soon as you get to verse five. Because in verse five, Luke dramatically shifts his writing style and is something that's all of a sudden very familiar. Those who are used to reading the Old Testament in Greek are like, oh, this sounds like the Old Testament. And it's so dramatic that it seems intentional. But okay, why? Why would Luke do that? Why would he kind of write in a way that seems very foreign and then launch into things very differently in verse five? Well, the reason seems to be, and this is what a lot of scholars think, because Luke knows, he consciously knows that what he is starting to write in verse five is the scriptures. 
that he is actually writing the continuation of the Old Testament story. He is writing about the fulfillment of the true story of the world that began in the Old Testament. That all begins for Luke in verse 5. Okay, I point that out because what it means is that we cannot truly understand what is going on in our passage in this section at all unless we are aware of where the Old Testament left off. Okay, so where was that? Where did the Old Testament story leave off? Well, as we've been talking about, when we look at the Old Testament, we are not merely looking at the story of Israel and their tribal God. No, as we've been saying over and over again, the story of the scriptures, the story of the Old Testament presents itself to us as the true story of the whole world. It's not just about one people, it is about us all. And the God of Israel is the God of the whole world who is on a mission to save and restore the whole world to what it was meant to be. And who chose one people, set one people apart, blessed one people for the sake of the whole world, knowing their God. That's the story that we know. It's the true story of the world where God sets the people apart so that all people would come to know who God is, so that they might be saved and restored through them. But as you read through the story of the Old Testament, while no doubt there are high points, such as God's salvation of his people out of slavery, or the ascension of King David to the throne, where God promises King David that he will have a descendant. He will have a son who will come to rule over the whole world forever with justice and with righteousness, or the ministry of Elijah who called the people back to the Lord. You have those high points, but most of it is low points. Most of it is God's people rejecting him rejecting his king, rejecting his rays, rejecting his prophets, and thus failing to show his salvation to the rest of the world time and again. You see, this is why the Old Testament is so often full of lament and judgment. It's why God's people are so often not free. It's why they are time and again dominated by their nations, and why those who are truly seeking to follow God are so often longing for a different world. Because when you read through the Old Testament, over and over again, God's ways, his mission, his love, his forgiveness, his kings, his prophets, his restoration, his righteousness, so often rejected. So often, in fact, that it seems that that's just the way of the world. That the way of actually denying God is just the way the world is, and it's never going to be any different. But in the midst of all of this, there's also promises woven throughout the Old Testament that say that one day, God will so definitively act that things will be different. One day, things will be reversed. One day, David's son will come. One day, God's people will no longer be longing, no longer be like a barren woman desperately longing for children. For one day, they will give birth to God's salvation. In fact, one of those promises finishes the Old Testament. For in the very end of the Old Testament, the very last two verses of the last book of the Old Testament, this is what it says, okay? So this is the end of Malachi 4. These are the last two verses of the Old Testament. They say this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And I know that sounds pretty intense and perhaps confusing, but basically what the last two verses of the Old Testament is saying is the day of the Lord will come. My salvation will arrive. 
And before that day, right before the one who I've promised will come, right before Christ will arrive, one will come who is like the prophet Elijah, like the great prophet of old, and he will call the people back to me to know me and to honor me. This is saying that a time is coming where I will act, and it will begin with one who will come like Elijah. That is how the Old Testament story ends. And so that is the story that Luke is continuing. And he wants us in our minds as we actually begin his gospel. But with what he says in verse five, what we need to see is that he is immediately saying that things haven't gotten any better, that actually they've gotten worse. Because while we see and note about a priestly family of Zachariah and Elizabeth, that God's people have some freedom to serve, in reality, it's a fake freedom. Because the first thing that he says is in the time of Herod, king of Judea. And Herod is not the right king. Herod, king of Judea, is not actually the line of David. Herod, king of Judea, is the puppet king of Rome. He's not the right king. The rightful king of God's people is a descendant of David. A descendant of David who would come and rule over the world with righteousness and with justice and would restore the world to what it's meant to be. But that hasn't happened. Another king rules the world. And that king's name is not Herod, but actually Caesar. And so you see, what this means is that with the very first words of his gospel, Luke is continuing the story, but he's doing so by saying right away that it's been 400 years and we're still waiting. It's been 400 years, and we're still looking. It's been 400 years, and we are still longing. And after all this time, not only does it not seem like God is in control, there's another king who seems to be ruling in his place. And I think we need to allow ourselves to feel that for a moment here. And to allow the questions that that would cause to actually come up within us and to be asked. Why? Why this long? Why this delay? I mean, I want you to actually imagine being there. Imagine being the people of God who have for thousands of years received promises that God will overturn things. God will care for you. God will be there for you. And yet over all this time, you're still waiting generation after generation after generation of looking for God to act, and he's not. What kind of questions would you be asking? Why? Why are you doing this? Why this delay? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Luke, I believe, wants us to feel those questions. In fact, with how Luke does this, by saying these are the days of King Herod and then immediately talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth as this righteous and blameless couple who has served the Lord faithfully, but is without child. Because Elizabeth is barren and they're very old. I think we're actually meant to attach the longings of Zachariah and Elizabeth to the longings of the people of God. And not just because God is bringing them together, that when he reverses their fortunes, he is reversing the fortunes of the world, but we are meant to actually feel the pain of this couple as our own. Their pain is the pain of the world looking for something different, longing for it to actually be reversed, to be overturned. So let's allow ourselves for a second to feel this. And I know for some of you, that won't be hard to do. Because for some of you in this room, you can so easily relate to this situation 
to longing for children or to longing for something that's so good. You want that reversal. You long for God to give you something that is so good that all of us would look and say, yeah, I would think that God would want to give that to you. You see, that's what's so confusing and hard about something like infertility or like waiting for God to fulfill his promises. They are the kinds of things that legitimately make us question God, legitimately make us want to scream at God, want to join our voices with the psalmist saying, how long will you forget me forever? Why are you doing this? Please, why won't you give this to me? Because it is something that is so good. My wife and I actually went through a time of infertility. Some of you have actually probably heard the story if you were at the the women's retreat. And And I know that what we went through is not even close to what some of you have gone through and some of you are going through. So I don't want to be talking about this and making it sound as if my pain is as extreme as, as others. It's, it's not. It is not. But the hardship that we went through, I think, gave me this taste of the difficulty and the kind of confusing nature of these hardships. Because the hardship of infertility is not just that you want something that you don't have. Of course, that's part of it. That is part of it, and it is very real. But so much of the hardship of it is actually the bewildering experience of it that makes you question God. Because what you're looking for is something that's so good. And it seems that God should want to give this to you, and yet he doesn't. Why? Have I done something wrong? Is this a punishment? Do you not care? Do I need to learn something? The reality is that while sometimes those are the things we like to say to people, like, oh, you'll understand this later, that maybe you've done something wrong or something like that, the Bible often gives a definitive no to those questions. We need to be really careful when we say those things. Like in the book of Job, Job never gets an explanation. He never understands why in the end. He gets God, and that's good, but he never gets an explanation. And even with Zachariah and Elizabeth, think about this, guys. They are righteous and blameless. Luke actually wants us to feel the confusion of this. This isn't something they deserve. And yet, they don't have children. But far from answering the bewilderment, seeing that likely only adds to it. I think that's what so many of us have experienced. And this doesn't just come from infertility. There's a lot of different things that bring that kind of pain. Why do some of my friends, who are so awesome, so wonderful, why has God not given them the spouse that they long for? Why has he held back from healing others? Why do some feel confused in their bodies and long to feel settled? Why are there parents who are suffering watching their children be sick and dying? Why are there children who have seen their parents die? Why does God allow war? Why doesn't he intervene when there's so much injustice? Why won't he stop the oppression? Why won't he end all the suffering? These are the questions that our world is so often asking and that we feel inside. But I want us to know they're good questions. Because when we ask this, we are longing for the world to be put right. 
We're longing for God to do what he said he would do. And so if you feel like you want things to be different, if you long for a better world, for a reversal, if you long for God to do what he said he will do, I want you in this series and right now, allow yourself to feel that right now. Feel it. Because that is what Luke wants us to feel as we begin his gospel. Feel the pain and longings of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Feel the pain of a world longing to be put right. They are the longings for God to do what he said he would do. And they are the longings that we will keep having till he appears, until he comes back. But Christmas is the knowledge, is the reminder that he will, that he will do that because he began to overturn things with the gift of a child to Zachariah and Elizabeth. That's what the story is telling us. Because, okay, as the story progresses, we see that a series of unlikely things takes place to put Zachariah in a remarkable spot. Okay, so as the first few verses say there, he is a priest. And because there were so many priests in Israel at this time, they were divided up into different divisions, all right? So he was in the division of Abijah. And essentially how it worked is that outside of festival times, all the divisions would take turns serving at the temple during two separate one-week periods, okay? So it's saying that at what, at what point he was there serving the temple and they cast lots to figure out who would be the priest who would enter into the holy place, which is like the second most holy place in all of the world for an Israelite, okay, so he's going to go into the holy place and he's going to burn incense. And his name was chosen. And this means that we're really entering into Zechariah's life at the most significant moment of his entire priestly career. Okay, because when you got to do this, one, not all priests got the chance to actually go in there and burn the incense. And if you got to do it, it would be the only time you got to do it your entire life. Okay, your name was taken out of the lot casting next time. So this is a huge deal. He gets to go into the holy place and burn the incense. And the reason for doing that is he was acting as an intercessory priest for the people. It's intercessory prayers being put forward. He represents the people to God. So he's the one who would enter in, go before the Lord, and every other priest in his division will be outside the temple praying as well, interceding for God. But okay, while he's doing this, while he's in there burning incense, offering these intercessory prayers, all of a sudden, an angel appears to him, and he gets terrified. He is afraid, but then the angel says this in verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. But okay, before we move on, I want to ask the question, what prayer is that? What prayer is the angel, is Gabriel, as we find out later, is Gabriel referring to? What I don't think it is specifically referring to is a prayer for a child. In fact, I would say almost certainly that's not what he's praying for. And I know that might seem surprising because it's like, isn't that kind of what happens there? But I want you to think about the entire story here. Think about what happens in this entire story. What happens after the angel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a child? How does Zechariah respond? In verse 18, he says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And he says that, as the text explains, because he doesn't think that's even possible. He says that because as Gabriel explains explains in verse 20, he doesn't believe Gabriel's words. 
And I want you to process through them what is happening here. Zechariah has entered before the Lord, offering prayers. An angel appears to him, tells him you're going to have a child, and he's like, I doubt that. I doubt that that's true. It's a bit comical when you think about it, but I want you to actually process through what brings you to that point. What brings you to the point where an angel of God can stand before you, tell you what's going to happen, and you can say, I don't think that's true. Only if after years and years and years and years of longing for something, it hasn't happened, that you have settled within yourself that that's just not something for me. That's just not a gift that I could ever receive. That's how Zachariah feels, as if this kind of gift has passed him by. So he's not even standing before God asking for it anymore. Instead, what is he praying for? He's praying for God's great reversal. He's praying for God to change the world. He's interceding for all of the people. He's interceding for God's people. He's asking for God to fulfill his promises. But in his mind, what that doesn't include, what it can't include, is a reversal for himself. That he's checked out. That's too far gone. And yet, listen to the words that Gabriel then says to him again. And we get in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the heart to the parents of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, do you hear the imagery there? What is that picking up on? That's picking up on the last verses of the Old Testament. This is saying that this child is the beginning of God's great reversal. This is the great forerunner of the day of the Lord. This is the one who will come before Emmanuel himself will come and all things will be made new. This is the prophet like Elijah who will come before God's great reversal. This is saying that this child is the beginning of God fulfilling his promises and reversing the fortunes of the world. I have heard your prayer, Zechariah, and I'm now moving to fulfill my promises. But... But by doing this, through giving a child to this old barren couple, rather than just a normal younger family, which we'd expect it to come, by doing this through giving this, this as a child to an old barren couple who are so old that they don't even pray for it anymore, for God to reverse their fortunes, to fulfill their longings, God is moving to fulfill his promises in such a way that he is showing Zechariah, and he is showing us that the fulfillment of God's promises will do things, will reverse things, will overturn things so fully that what we believe unfixable will be fixed. What we believe impossible 
will be overturned. Even the longings that we have that seem too far gone, they will be brought to fruition. You see, the birth of John is the beginning of the birth of a new world. But that means that Zachariah and Elizabeth are experiencing a foretaste of what is to come for us all. And what I mean by that is I'm not promising specifically that God's going to do the exact thing that you're thinking about. What I'm saying is this is the beginning of the reversal when God makes all things new and he wipes every tear from our eyes, even the tears we shed and we believe could never be taken away. This is the beginning of God bringing joy to the barren, community to the lonely, hope to the hopeless, sight to the blind, food to the hungry, joy to the oppressed, healing to the sick, forgiveness to the sinner, even life to the dead. This is actually why I wanted to encourage all of us to allow ourselves right now to feel our longings for things to be different. Because what do you long for but you no longer pray for? What do you believe is too far gone? Is it children? Is it healing? Is it peace? Do you listen to these prayers that we prayed before that Wesley let us in? Like, why do we even pray for this anymore? This can't be fixed. Is it no more anxiety? Is it to be reconciled to someone? Is it to see a loved one come back to know the Lord? Is it to see a loved one rise from the grave? I think in many ways, we often don't allow ourselves to feel those things. At least I often don't because it does seem pointless. It seems hopeless. Like staring at the problems in our lives and our friends and family members' lives, in our world, it seems like an exhausting experience that only leads to despair. We can't fix the problems of our world, so why bother? We can't overturn the pain in our lives, so why would we focus on it? That's how, how, how I think we often feel. And in the midst of that, not only church sometimes, but Christmas becomes like this thing where we just kind of pretend like things are okay. You like walk through these doors and you feel like you're supposed to be joyful. So you throw a smile on your face and you pretend like everything is absolutely fine. Or it comes to Christmas and you throw up some lights and you pretend like everything's okay and you just smile and laugh with your friends and with your family. But in reality, you don't actually understand how to be joyful because what you long for isn't there. We think that the season is supposed to be joyful, and so we just pretend everything is fine. This really came home to me a number of years ago. So I, I lived in Chicago for a long time, and I was watching the news. And the reason I was watching the news is because I wanted to hear there was protests that were taking place close to downtown Chicago on Roosevelt and State. You don't even know what streets there are, but it's, it's decently close to downtown. And the protests were over the murder of an unarmed 17-year-old kid named Laquan McDonald, who was shot 16 times by one police officer. He was actually shot so many times, Laquan was moving away from the police officer. The police officer shot him, reloaded his gun, 
and kept shooting him while he was on the ground. When the dash cam video was released, there was understandably protests. And so I was watching the news just to know what was going on with that. But what happened next just shocked me. The newscasters telling about the story, we're talking about that, but when they finished reporting on that story, their facial expressions and their tone noticeably changed. They got a smile on their faces, and they said this, Chicago's Christmas tree was lit up this evening on Michigan Avenue, and isn't it beautiful? The two events were about seven to 10 blocks away from one another. How do they relate? Do they have anything to do with one another? The way the reporting happened is it seemed like they didn't. Like one was the desperate pleading of people longing for a different world, pleading for justice, for mercy, for things to be right. And the other was an opportunity to just throw a smile on and pretend like those longings don't exist. But you see, North Park, Christmas happened. God sent John and he sent Jesus Christ because of those longings, because of those desperate pleas for a different world. And that, that's what this story is all about. It is about God acting during the days of longing, during the days of us looking for something to be different. The story of Zachariah and Elizabeth is the story of God's great reversal, of him overturning the pain of our world. It is the beginning of God fulfilling the longings of our world for things to be different. That's what Christmas and Advent is really about. It's not about smiling because we're just pretending the pain isn't there. It's actually about rejoicing because we know there's an answer because he has come and he will come again because Christ has appeared and he will appear again. And when he does, when the one who was crucified, who died for us and rose again, when he appears, then like Zechariah and Elizabeth, the greatest of our longings will be overturned. There will be no more barrenness. There will be no more loneliness. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more war, no more oppression, no more sin, no more death, for the former things will be gone, and he will make all things new. The question for us today is can we believe that? Can we trust God and his promises? Can we hold on to that and be people who live amidst the pain, not by ignoring it, by having our hope because of what Christ has done and will do? Can we live with joy because of what Christ has done and what he will do? Can we live with trust because of what Christ has done and what he will do? You see, the end of this text holds Zechariah and Elizabeth up to us as two options for how to respond. It had been hundreds of years of people longing and decades of Zechariah and Elizabeth wanting a child and God hadn't yet delivered. And so for Zechariah, he had come to believe that it wasn't possible. So when God's reversal actually came for him, he didn't believe it. But for Elizabeth, for Elizabeth when it came, when God's deliverance arrived, she was ready. 
She didn't doubt. She didn't waver. She simply said in verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, these days of longing, these days of looking for something different, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. We once again live at a time where it's been hundreds of years. Hundreds of years of looking, of longing, waiting for God to do it again. God is faithful. His promises are sure. He will reverse the ways of our world. He will undo the power of sin. He will unleash the dead from their graves because of Jesus Christ. Because John came as the forerunner of the one who would come, who would die for us, and who would rise again, and who will come again. Until he appears, we long for more. We long for a different world. But when he does, what seems impossible will be reversed. What seems unfixable will be fixed. That began with John. It's been assured through Christmas. It's what God offers to do for us and for others. So may we be a people who hold to that and who seek to give it to others. What we're now gonna do is we're gonna move to a time in our service where we get to respond to what Christ has done by participating in the Lord's table. And so I'd like to invite our servers to come forward as I pray to finish up our sermon and then we will move to participating in communion. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that he has come to bear our sin, to bear our shame, to bear our pain on himself. Thank you that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Thank you that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Thank you that even all of us, even though all of us have gone astray like sheep, you have laid on him the iniquity of us all. And thank you, Father, that he rose again and that he will come again. May we cling to that. I want to pray, Father, once again for my brothers and my sisters here today, Lord, who didn't have to push their minds at all to think about the things that they long for, who didn't struggle whatsoever to identify themselves with Zachariah and Elizabeth because that's where they're at right now. They're longing for a reversal. Lord, I plead with you to comfort them. Help us to comfort them. And Lord, may they look to Jesus. May we enable them to know his love and care, that he is there, that he will come again. And when he does, all of the pain will be undone. May they know that. May we all know that. In Jesus' name, amen.